So as we, uh, we prepare to enter into the season of Lent, um, which is upon us as of Wednesday, where Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of Lent, and next Sunday is, is the first Sunday of Lent. We're wrapping up um, the series that we've been in uh, on Mark 11 and 12, where Jesus is being questioned by different religious groups in Jerusalem. And this, these questions are during the, actually the last week of Jesus' life on earth, uh, we, we often call Holy Week. And in these, these questions that, that he's been asked and the answers that Jesus gives, they actually provide us uh, a, a description um, of what a life of following Jesus is all about, the life that, that Jesus offers us. The same is with this question that Jesus gets this morning. Um, what is the greatest commandment? And so uh, at the London Olympics in 2012, there uh, were women from, from all across the world gathered together to compete in, in the event known as the triathlon. And a triathlon is actually three sports combined into one, it's swimming, biking, and running. So the women who were gathering together to, com- to compete in this event, they trained uh, a tremendous amount of time in order to sustain the 1,500-meter you know, swim, 40-kilometer bike, and 10-kilometer run, the grueling pace and length of this, this event. And it took up... Uh, their lives for four years preparing for this race. And after uh, competing, completing the swim and uh, finishing the bike ride and closing in actually on the last 100 meters of, of the running part, so the, the very end of the race, the home stretch, two athletes, uh, Swedish athlete uh, Lisa Norden and Swiss athlete Nicola Spring were neck and neck. And they crossed the finish line at the same time with exactly the same times. Exactly. And uh, you would expect a photo finish from a race like the 100 meter or, or the, the 200 meter hurdles or something that's, you know, 10 seconds or 30 seconds. All those events almost always come down to, to a photo finish. But a race that's almost two hours long, you would think that there would be a clear winner, but not this time. And in fact, the Swiss athlete beat the Swedish athlete by two centimeters. And just to put that in perspective, uh, the, the race is made up of 51.2 million centimeters. Imagine what's going through the Swedish athlete's mind. Four years of training, and it comes down to two centimeters. And see, one of the interesting things, too, is when you look at the podium, right, and the difference between first and second on the podium remains the same, whether it was two centimeters or two. Two million centimeters. That gold medal is still way out of reach. I can imagine that this Swedish athlete 
Lisa Norden would, would have been asking why. Why could not I not have mustered up enough strength to, to lunge my body forward at least just two more centimeters? I wonder if that's what the scribe is thinking in this passage. As Jesus looks at him and says, you've answered wisely when you're outside the kingdom. As he looks back at, at his life and how he follows these two great commandments, he maybe goes away thinking, what can I do to, to get into that kingdom? How can I muster up enough strength? And is that what we should be thinking too? Well, let's look at that. So I want to look at this passage this morning under three uh, headings, what Jesus is teaching, why the scribe comes close, and how Jesus draws near. What Jesus is teaching, why the scribe comes close, and how Jesus draws near. So what is Jesus saying? What is he teaching? Well, first, what I find interesting is how, um, how the scribe comes to Jesus. See, we've been looking at all these different religious groups that have been coming and asking Jesus questions, and every single time that they've come to him, it's been to try to trip him up. It's been to try to get him caught up in his words so that he's easier to arrest and easier to, to kill. Except this one. Right? This scribe hears that Jesus has answered wisely. And, and so he asks him a question. He says, you know, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment in the law? Now, for the Jews, there were 613 Laws and they had categorized them into uh, lighter laws. So these were the ones that weren't as important, and heavier laws, which were the ones that were important. And and but what this scribe actually is not asking Jesus to do is to pick one. He's not asking him to pick one of the six hundred and thirteen, one of the heavier laws, and say this one. If you're going to follow one, this is the because they had they they believed they had to follow the whole thing. Instead what this scribe is doing is actually uh, a form of respect to Jesus. He's asking Jesus uh, to do something that he would only do if he actually valued Jesus' input, and that is to take the, the law, all 613 laws, and summarize it. Give it to him in a small package. If, answering the question, basically, if you would characterize what this law is about, what is it? Give me the Twitter version, right? 180 characters, capturing something much larger, a deeper conversation, but give me, boil it down. Tell me what this is about. And so in Jesus' answer, he res responds back to this scribe with something that every Jew would have recognized to be of crucial importance and a really good summary of the law, and that is the, what they called the Shema. And the, the, the reason why they called it that is because Shema is the Hebrew word for listen or hear. And that's the first word in the command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was spoken, prayed, meditated on by every Jew, devout Jew every morning. And so... Uh, one of the reasons why they would recite it every morning is because it was a, a it was the it was the way that they reminded themselves of the life that Jesus called that that God called them into the life of devotion that He required of people. 
And the key word in this command is love. Right? Love the Lord your God. And the, there, in the Greek language, there's three different words to capture love. And, and the, word, the one that is uh, in this passage is the word agape. And uh, that, word, that word to describe love captures a, a love of devotion, a love of, of care, of concern. It's, it's the love that, that I would uh, use to describe how, how I care for, for Austin, my son. You know, I, I love him with, with an agape love, with, with a love of devotion. I care for him. And that, that's what leads me to constantly be, be doing things like changing his diaper or taking him for walks or uh, reading him stories or anything, anything that he wants. I'm devoted to him. With the love, this this is what uh, is is being described in this in this command. It's a love of devotion to God, and not only uh, a love of devotion, but a love of devotion that that is is played out in our entire being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. This this, this makes up the entire human body, soul, the whole package. It's, and a good example of this is, um, so Tracy, my wife, loves to read books. And when, when she gets into a good book, she really gets into it. And, and it captures her, her heart. It captures her soul. It captures her mind as she's, as she's pondering the, you know, the characters and the plot and, and all. And, and it captures her strength as she's you know, physically holding onto the book, reading the, the words and, and you know, turning the pages. And what, when she's reading, reading a book, it, it's actually really hard to get her attention because she is fully devoted to, because that's what it takes. And, and this is what, what Jesus is trying to get at with this, this command, that, that the, the love, the devotion to God is something that, that, that should capture, capture our whole beings. It should, it should be hard to distract us from being devoted to God. And according to Jesus, this leads us, this is extended into loving our neighbors. Why is that? Why is that the natural place where this, this commandment leads us to? Well, most commentators uh, say that in adding this part about loving your neighbor as yourself, it, ex- it, extends, it actually extends the devotion that we give to God to the people around us. In other words, uh, devoting ourselves to God doesn't just impact our, you know, our vertical relationship. It, it, it changes our horizontal relationships too. And, and John Calvin helps us to wrestle with this. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase a lot of uh, what he writes about loving our neighbors. And he says that looking at this command, uh, he, he said it's so easy to look at our neighbors, the people who are around us, and think, you know, my goodness, if, if I'm supposed to love my neighbors, this, like, this is going to be really hard. My neighbors uh, don't think like me. My neighbors don't act like me. My neighbors are actually a little bit annoying and get loud at night and park in the wrong spots on the road and all these things. That, that we can think of reasons why we shouldn't love our neighbors. And Calvin says that's natural. 
That's, that's our human condition. And he says, as a result, most of us will go back to Jesus and say, you can't really mean that we're supposed to love all our neighbors. And Jesus will say, or might say, well, you remember that, that parable about the Good Samaritan, right? And, and trying to capture that, that our, our neighbor doesn't mean, a person being our neighbor doesn't mean that we like them or that we, we are like them. It's deeper than that. Because even further, if we push this a little bit further, sometimes our neighbors will do things like, like hurt us. Or they'll, they'll do awful things to other people. And how are we going to overlook that? It's not even that you're, they're just hard to love. It's that they're, they actually, we don't think they deserve our love. And Calvin says this, and I'll pull up this quote. He says, It is that we remember, this is what it, to love our neighbor, it is that we remember not to consider man's evil intentions. So, we have to put aside action. But to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity, allures us to love and embrace them. And so what Calvin is saying is that loving our neighbors as ourselves is not a command that's put in place to make society a better place, although it does that. It's not a command that humbles us, is meant to humble us, although it does that. But it, but it actually, because every human being carries with it the image of God. God's name is stamped on every human being, and as a result, that person is an extension of our devotion to God. Because... That, because that person carries with it the image of God, that person is beautiful. And so the scribe hears this summary that Jesus gives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and agrees with him. He agrees with him, and he says to him, well said, or good job, you're right, in seeing that God is one, and there's no other but him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, is more important than all the offerings and sacrifices. So he agrees with Jesus, but then he says these two, that these, he agrees with them, but then he says that these two commands are more important than the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, what does that mean? Why does he add that to the end of it? And well, what the scribe is referring to is actually that in the scribal tradition, there were three ways that they believed that human beings atoned for their sin, for their brokenness. The first is through burnt offerings. So the Israelites would, would sacrifice a calf or, or a, a lamb on the, on the offering, and they would burn it as, as a way of atoning for the sin of the people. And, and, and that had significance in, how, in them being right with God, in their relationship with God. The other was by sacrifices. The Jews had many sacrifices that they would offer, give back to God, as a way of atoning, making right 
their relationship with him. And the third way was through agape love, was through acts of devotion. And so what the scribe is saying here is that of these three, that agape love, loving God and loving your neighbor, is the most important. And that gets him close. Because what he's actually doing is he's taking Jesus' commands here, his summary of the law, and he's placing it in his own idea of religion. And it only gets him close. Because he can't love his way into a relationship with God. He can't devote himself to God's law, work hard enough to find his way into God's kingdom. It doesn't work like that. A good example of this, someone I was reading this week uh, used the example of Goldie and Tevya in the musical Fiddler on the Roof. And there's a scene in, in the Fiddler on the Roof where uh, Tevya, the, the husband, and Goldie, the wife, they, they are in an arranged marriage. And they've been married for 25 years. And so tw- after 25 years, Tevya comes to Goldie and says, do you love me? And, and Goldie says to him, what? <laughs> and he says it again, do, do you love me? And uh, she says to him, for 25 years, I've washed your clothes. I've cooked your meals. I've cleaned your house. I've given you children. I've milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love now? And he repeats the question, do you love me? And she responds more reflectively this time. uh, For 25 years, I've lived with him. I've fought with him. I've starved with him. I've shared my bed with him. If that's not love, what is? I wonder if this is maybe the way that the scribe feels here. Because Jesus is actually inviting the scribe and saying, do you love me? And the scribe is saying, of course I love you. For 25 years, I've devoted myself to you. I've tried really hard to follow you. I have preserved as best as I can the tradition of my ancestors. What are you talking about? Of course, I love you. But we can have all the duty of love, all the sacrifice, all of the actions of love. We can check all the right boxes. We can say all the right things and still miss the heart of devotion that Tevya wanted to hear from his wife. G.K. Chesterton uh, puts it like this. Your religion should be less of a theory and more of a love affair. See, often we take delighting in God out of the equation and focus on trying to impress him with what we do. Right? The things that, that we do that, that honor God, that bring him glory. And we, we, we take these things and we collect them all and then we hand them to him and we say, Look, don't you love me? And God says to us, child, actions aren't all that I'm looking for. I don't want your actions if I don't get 
you. Because what God wants from us is delight. Being absolutely captivated by his beauty, the beauty of his grace. Whenever I attend weddings, actually I shouldn't say that, sometimes when I attend weddings, one of the things that I look for is when, when the bride is coming in and everyone stands up and everyone looks back at the bride. But I've been where the groom is and I've looked down the aisle and seen the beauty of my bride. And so when, now whenever, whenever I go to a wedding, I look at that and I, what, you, what you can see is a moment where that person is captivated simply by the beauty. Brothers and sisters, this is how God sees us. God is crazy about us. How do we know this? We look at Jesus, the Savior who has come near to us. Jesus is the love of God sent to rescue us. Not because he was morally obligated. Not because God felt bad that we sinned against him and turned away. John 3.16 doesn't say that for God felt so obligated to the world that he sent his only son. No, for God so loved the world. God is, and, and the word for loved is agape. God is so devoted to the world, to you and to me, and to redeeming us that he sent Jesus Christ. And where did this lead him? What was the extent of his devotion? God went so far as to take upon himself all our sin, all our brokenness, and go to the cross and bear the weight of it and die so that we could have life. So that nothing would get between us and him. Because of Jesus, we can sit back and enjoy God's love and delight in his mercy and his grace. Brothers and sisters, I want you to say to yourself, God loves me. Go ahead. I want you to turn to the person sitting beside you and say, God is crazy about you. We can get so caught up in doing and miss the beauty of our Lord and delight in him. And that is where God wants us to be. And that is where our obedience will flow from. Not from being, doing, but from delighting. And this, is, this happens through Jesus Christ as we look at him, as we see the beauty of his grace in our lives. We then can respond to God and love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves without doing it 
to please God, doing it simply because God is beautiful. And thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are good. You are beautiful to us. God, we know that we often try to impress you with the things that we do. We try to earn our way into your kingdom. God, we often forget that you died so that we could be saved by grace, not by works. Lord, help us to delight in you. Help us to rest in the fact that that you are crazy about us. Help us to turn away from all the doing things out of obligation and duty. Help us to delight in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.